Hello, and welcome to Sundays at Coastal. Today, Pastor Andy Rock preaches a sermon out of Acts chapter 8 titled, You Can't Buy the Holy Spirit. You can believe that God is real. You can believe that Jesus is God and that he's your Savior. But that doesn't mean that you want the Holy Spirit to be involved in your life. Why? Because the Holy Spirit convicts you, leads you, insists on you listening and surrendering. The Holy Spirit doesn't care about your plans, timelines, expectations, or comfortable religious equations. The Holy Spirit has much bigger and better plans. Are you willing to finally trust the Holy Spirit? Are you willing to surrender? If you are new or visiting with us this morning, um, welcome. We are so glad you took the risk to come to church on Labor Day weekend. And, uh, and, and if you have escaped from the valley, um, may God have mercy on your soul when you return to 115 degree weather uh, on Tuesday. And uh, so feel free to stay. And, uh, you know, just call in sick. Uh, we have, uh, we believe three things in this church, and this is the core of what we do and why we do what we do. Uh, number one, there is always hope beyond our brokenness. Always. Um, if you were looking for the perfect church, you messed it up the moment you stepped through the door. And, and that's, a, that's a truth that we understand, that yes, we have brokenness in our lives, but we're, we're not staying as victims. We become overcomers and then more than conquerors. And, and that's, that's only and always through Jesus and this community that we do life together with. Second, you and I are called to trust in our risen Savior. And trusting God is wild. We surrender our lives to him. We say, Jesus, I'm yours. And then he asks us by faith to risk. And we're going to be talking about what that what it looks like to move from a victim to overcomer today in our brokenness and then what it looks like to trust Jesus and surrender. And then what happens is that we get to and are invited to bring restoration to this weary world. And so we do that by caring for each other in the church. Y'all, someone last week, I have no idea who, gave... $50,000 to the deacon fund. So deacons care for people within our church. Listen, there's nobody in our church that's going to go hungry. There's nobody in our church that's going to lose out on housing. There's nobody in our church that's not going to be able to afford medical bills. Because someone said, Jesus, I want to bring restoration right here. (sighs) So good. It's so good. And then we do that with people outside of the church. So Seth and Bruce got to do that this last week. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah, maybe Jesus is saying. (laughs) Maybe Jesus is saying, guys, I want to use you and your generosity, and your love to change someone's life. And so at the end of today's sermon, we're going to talk about how we could do this together as a church, focusing on one particular community. 
And so that's going to be at the end of the sermon today. So today's sermon in Acts chapter 8 covers the whole of what we believe. And each one of those truths of hope and trust and restoration has a choice attached to it. And so we declare together as the body of Christ this truth every week. We are disciples who walk intentionally with God. Therefore, I choose to be changed by Jesus. I choose to seek Jesus first. And I choose to join Jesus in his resurrection work. Amen? Amen. Okay, so last week, last week, we left off with the death of Stephen. He's the first, he's the first Christian in uh, Jesus' follower outside of Jesus himself who was killed for the kingdom of God. And what did Stephen say to all of the pastors that were sitting in front of him, which is very threatening to pastors? God doesn't live in a box. God doesn't have an address where you can go to 123 Temple Street and see God. The power and the presence and the story of the Holy Spirit is that now the Holy Spirit has left the Holy of Holies and now the Holy Spirit has made your heart the Holy of Holies, the place where God himself dwells as you say yes to Jesus saving you. Amen? So today we're going to talk a lot about our relationship with the Holy Spirit because God is living and present and active through the Holy Spirit. The mistakes that we, that, we, that we make, the misunderstandings that we carry, the way forward in our life, we're going to talk about all these things and how do we move forward with the Holy Spirit, surrendering to the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're going to talk about that today. So can I speak to your heart of hearts? So 11 people said yes. Is that okay? Can I, can I speak to your heart of hearts? I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to encourage you and preach the gospel to your heart today. Okay? So can we pray real quick? Lord Jesus, would you please remove any and all resistance that's in us right now to your word, to the scripture? to the truth that you have for us today. We say yes to the application of this word to our souls, and we say to our own soul, awaken, O my soul, right now. We unplug our ears, and we command any confusion or doubt or anything opposed to Christ that is on us or in us to be silent and be gone in Jesus' name. Do you guys agree? Lord, this time is yours. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to pick up, pick up at, the end of, uh, at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, verse 1. The end of chapter 7, Acts has, Stephen has just been killed, and there's been a guy there, uh, a, a rabbi, a pastor, who's held all of the uh, Gucci and Dolce Gabbana robes that the high priests, because they didn't want to get blood on him when they were stoning Stephen to death. This guy saw... Um, is holding these robes. Let's read what happens next together. Are you ready? Here we go. And Saul approved of his execution. That's Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. So wait, go back one verse. Sorry. Sorry. 
So what's happening? What's happening is that in Jerusalem, the 10,000 plus people that have said yes to Jesus are now driven out of Jerusalem, led by Saul, okay? And the only people that stay behind are the 12 apostles and their families, okay? And they're going to stay in Jerusalem and continue to try and build the church in Jerusalem, but the rest of the church is then scattered. That's a bad day, right? Let's read what happens next, verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church. That word ravaging is, it's, it's, in the Greek, it's called lumeno, and it literally means bloodlust. It's the, it's the word that is described for wild animals when they just go crazy. That's what Saul was doing. And he was ripping the church apart. He was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women, read it, and committed them to prison. Saul thought it was a great idea to kill Stephen. Why? Because in Saul's mind, Stephen was trying to rip apart his church, his faith, his ideas, his life. And so Saul thought, mm, I don't want to lose everything, so I'm going to rip Stephen apart, and I'm going to rip apart anybody that Stephen supports or that is in his camp. Does that make sense? Scripture isn't just stories. It's the history of how God has interacted with his people. And when we read scripture, we don't just say, oh, that's nice. We let scripture read us. We do this. When we are ruled by fear, we end up putting others through the nightmare we are trying to avoid. Let me say that again. When we are ruled by fear, we will end up putting others through the nightmare we are trying to avoid. What Saul couldn't see was that he was ripping literally the body of God, the people of God apart, even though he thought he was trying to save the people of God. And he couldn't see that he was also ripping himself apart as he was ravaging the church. When I am ruled by fear, I will make happen the very thing I'm trying to avoid. When I am ruled by fear, my attempts to protect myself or others by not being honest. Do you ever do that? Do you get afraid so you don't tell the whole truth? How's that work out? How's it ever worked well in your life when you hold something back and then the people that that you love, because you're trying to protect them, and then they find out that you've been lying to them all that time. How's that work out? You all are grumbling at me. I must be speaking the truth. How about when you don't tell the full story? Does that ever work out well? How about, oh, I get afraid uh, to love, and so I'm afraid of not being loved, and so I'll hold back to protect myself. I'll just keep a little bit in reserve. I won't fully give because I'm afraid of being rejected or abandoned. How does that work out? Dang. I mean, I swear, I did not read your email, okay? 
Saul was trying to rip the church apart, and he caused a lot of suffering. And as the church scattered, something awful happened. It grew. Let's read verse 4 together. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. This is remarkable. If you and I were driven by, out of our homes by the police department, hey, you all are Christians, you can't live here anymore. Wait, what? Yeah, you got to go to Samaria. We're relocating you to Bakersfield. Excuse? What would be the first thing that you would do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Weep. Mourn. Right? Rend your clothes. Right? Because it's hot. Right? Your sweatshirt wardrobe is permanently gone. Right? So you've packed everything that you have in your car or your two cars, right? Because the police aren't waiting for you. They're like, you got five minutes. Get your stuff. And then you're driven out of the Central Coast and you land in Bakersfield, right? Because you're not stopping in Maricopa or Oildale, right? <laughs> you, you end up in Bakersfield, right? And then what's the first thing that you would do? Yeah, find a place to live, I don't know, something, show up at the Holiday Inn. What does Philip do? Are you ready? Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Verse 6, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him. Why? Why? Because no one gets driven from their home, and then the first thing that they do say, y'all, I just lost everything, but there's hope beyond any brokenness that you can experience in life. And then where does Philip go in Bakersfield? He doesn't go to the nice part of town. He doesn't stay at the Marriott. He doesn't stay in at the Holiday Inn Express. Where does he stay? At the Motel 5. <laughs> Not even the Motel 6, right? It's the step below. He stays in the place where all of the sick and all of the poor and all of the possessed and all of the people that have been ravaged by life and have been ripped apart by life, he stays there. Is that where you would go in Bakersfield if you were driven from your home? Yeah, but Philip does. Philip does. And he starts talking about Jesus to them and he starts loving them and he starts praying for them and he starts touching them unclean people because Bakersfield is like it's full of like yeah it's unclean Augie knows he's from there right <laughs> they heard him and they saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed Read this with me, verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. See, Philip refuses to live as a victim. Yeah, he lost his home. Yeah, he lost his business. He lost whatever possessions that he had. And now in his family, he and his family are on the run. Yep, 
Philip just lost one of his closest friends, killed, crushed, destroyed, literally beaten to death. Philip has every right to be victimized, every right to be outraged, every right to be filled with bitterness, every right to be angry. He could spend legitimately the next six months in lament and grief. Oh, woe is me. What does he do? He says, I'm not going to be a victim. I'm not going to say stuck in what people have done for me. He has real grief that he's going to feel, but that doesn't stop him from loving other people. Philip decides to overcome, to become more than a conqueror, to stand in his true identity just like Stephen did. That Jesus himself is standing as a witness, standing in intercession, standing in prayer, standing in approval, saying, live and stand in who you truly are in Christ. And so Philip touches them and he spends time with them and he listens to the people that that everyone in even Samaria wouldn't spend time with. And as he prays for them, like miracles break out. Listen, maybe you've wrecked people like Saul. Maybe you've been wrecked like Philip. Don't stay in the place of being a victim or feeling so ashamed about what you've done. God sees you. God loves you. God knows your pain and your regret. Stand up. Remember whose you are. You are not what you've done or what's been done to you. You have been claimed by Jesus, saved by Jesus, cleansed by Jesus, restored by Jesus. Someone give me an amen. Amen. Open your eyes. It's time to move out of navel gazing and out into what's going on in your life. And I see you. You're doing this. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Don't give up on your purpose or your gifts just because you're hurting or just because you're in pain. Hold tight to the truth of the gospel. Yeah, I'm more broken than I want to admit. And I'm more loved than I'll ever dare to hope because of what Jesus has done for me. And if he's loved me with everything, then no matter where I am in my life, I can love the person sitting next to me with everything. Yeah, that person sitting next to you. I know. I see them too. (laughs) That one. So what happens next with Philip is, is a great example of what gets in the way of, what, uh, of us living like an overcomer or a more than conqueror. And this is unique to the church. Does that make sense? What we're going to read in Acts chapter 8 right now is unique to people who like religion. And y'all are here. And it's Labor Day weekend. So here you go. Are you ready? Remember how I asked how I could speak to your heart? You still sure? Here we go. Verse 9. Let's read. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. He says, I'm all that and a bag of chips. Best thing since sliced bread. Here we go. He's selling himself. He's a He's a huckster. He's a, 
He's a sidewalk street hustler. He has opened up a business called Simon's Magic Emporium, and you can get spells and incantations at a price. Does that make sense? And verse 10, read it with me. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is... This man is... Not has, but is the power of God that is called great. great. Literally meaning, oh man, he has the Almighty with him. In fact, he is the Almighty. They're not saying this because they're dumb. Verse 11, they're saying this because they have evidence. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Simon is a sorcerer. Sorcery is using secret magic spells and collaborations with demons to make incredible things happen. It's not gone, folks. This isn't just like ancient, like Simon wasn't like an engineer. He's like, here, here's electricity, right? That's not what he's doing. Simon is literally purchasing ancient scrolls that have ancient things specific phrases and words and languages in a specific order. And when you do that, you're inviting a demonic force into your life and you can do incredible things. Happens to this day. You ever seen a high-end magic show online or in person? You'll see magicians do crazy stuff that's far beyond just sleight of hand. There is the ability to do sorcery to this day and it happens right now. And everyone thought Simon was great. They called him the great one. And Simon paid a lot of money for his magic spells. He had to buy them from someone. He couldn't just find them. No education is free. Amen? Even if you didn't go to college, you know you've paid for your education. Yes? If you went to college, even in 1979, you are still paying for your education. If your kids or grandkids are going to college... Their grandchildren will pay for their education at this rate. So Simon offered all kinds of miracles to the people of the city for a price, and the people loved him because of the amazing things that he was doing. Healings happened, and they got stuff that they wanted, and it was great. The big downside to sorcery is that what you give in return for a miracle, you get the thing that you wanted, but the downside is what you have to give up. Or what, you, or what happens to you. You know what happens to you? Yeah, you get a thing that you want and you also get a demon that will wreck your life. Now, you and I might not hire a sorcerer. In fact, let me just say this. Please don't. <laughs> right? Don't go to the palm reader. Don't use Ouija boards. Don't. Don't try and use magic in your life. It will wreck you. But we still engage in the same kind of magical thinking. If I get this thing, I will be happy. If I get this amount of money, I will be happy. If I achieve this financial goal, my soul will finally feel better. That's magical thinking. 
Maybe if I say the right things in the right order, I will get what I want. That's called manipulation, but we do that all the time. It's a form of magical thinking. If I just say things, then I'll get someone to do what I want them to do. And it works in the short term until they find you out. Until they find you out. And then everything blows up. If you're trying to solve your problems apart from God, though your soul might feel better for a moment, you've just put yourself in bondage. Can you read this with me out loud? It's dangerous. Here you go. If you're trying to solve your problems apart from God, though your soul might feel better for a moment, you've just put yourself in bondage. Then Philip rolls into town. What does Philip do, right? He offers miracles. He prays for people. He sets people free from demonic bondage. He prays for people's healing. They get healed. How much does it cost the people of Bakersfield? Nothing. What does Philip say? Oh, your debt has been paid by your Savior. You don't have to pay for this. Oh, your healing has been bought bought with a price. It's the price of Jesus' blood. You don't have to pay for this. It's already been paid. Oh, this evil that we've removed from your life that you've renounced and rejected, you don't have to pay me to do that miracle. Why? Because Jesus has already defeated that evil by killing it, its power on the cross. And now you don't have to have that in your life anymore. Somebody say Shazam. What's the result? Verse 12, but when they believed... Next slide. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, what they all do? They were baptized, both men and women. Everybody in Bakersfield got a shower. Verse 13. Read it with me. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was... Earlier, it says that all the people were amazed, and they called Simon great. Now Simon sees Philip working and Jesus working, and he goes, I'm amazed. I'm not the great one. Jesus is the great one. Somebody say Shazam. That's incredible. Absolutely amazing. And those who are left in Jerusalem, those who were enduring the attacks on the church in Samaria and remain, they hear about what's happening in Samaria. They're like, can you believe what's happening in Bakersfield? Now, 14, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and the youth group. That's John. Remember, we're only six months maybe after the crucifixion and resurrection, right? John's still 15, 16 years old. Peter's still, right, commercial, ex-commercial fisherman in his late 30s, early 40s, okay? So they send Philip and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John and Philip laid their hands on them, and Bakersfield received the Holy Spirit. Hmm. They say all these people who believe in Jesus, but something's missing. They're not yet filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me just say this. You can believe in your brain that God is real. 
you can believe that Jesus is God and that he's your savior in your brain. When I say believe, I'm not talking about what's happening in your heart. I'm saying it's an intellectual thing that you agree with. Yes, I agree that Jesus is real. Yes, I agree in my brain that Jesus is God. Now, let me just be really clear. God wants your brain engaged. Amen? Okay. God invented logic. So he wants you to be logical and reasonable. God will give you reasons for faith. He's not just asking you to trust him out of thin air. He's going to give you reasons. He's going to reveal himself. You're going to understand how science and creation and mathematics, it all reveals the glory and the goodness of God. Okay? And then you're going to see the evidence of God's existence and the evidence of Jesus' life and resurrection. And logically, you can say, oh my gosh, God is real. I believe in Jesus. And that's an intellectual thing that that as absolutely necessary for the life of faith. But belief in your brain that Jesus is God, that God is real, that Jesus actually loves you and has died for you does not necessarily mean that you've given him your heart. Well, you and I know plenty of people that are not here today, and if you ask them, do you believe in God? They say, absolutely, I believe in God. Do you want to trust Jesus with your life? They say, no. No, no, I'm not ready to do that. Yeah. So, why? Why does this happen? See, the thing about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is going to convict you. Anybody like being convicted? The Holy Spirit will lead you. Anybody really like giving up all control and letting someone else lead? The Holy Spirit insists on you listening and surrendering. But we're trained as a culture and even trained in the culture of churches to say, well, I'm going to pray in the morning and then God will bless whatever I want to do with the rest of my day. The Holy Spirit, I mean, he loves you, but he's got way better plans for you than you do. The Holy Spirit has way bigger and way better plans for you than the poverty you desire. Let me repeat that again. In fact, would you proclaim this with me today? Instead of saying way better plans for you, say me and my desire. You ready? The Holy Spirit has way bigger and way better plans for me than the poverty I desire. Ooh, 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 ooh. We say, oh man, what I want is great. And what God says is, mm, I can do better. We say, oh man, um, this is safe. Um, this, this means that I have all the money I need and then all this extra money and then all the extra money in case the extra money runs out and then these three insurance apologies in case the extra, extra money and the extra money runs out. I'm set. And God goes, hmm. Hmm, are you? 
And we say, oh man, I love my routines. I can do this and I can do this and I have an outfit for this. Retirement is like outfit changing, right? You have like five of them, right? You have your morning outfit and then you have your workout outfit and then you have your going to the store outfit and then you have your coming home outfit and then you have your evening outfit, yeah? It's great, so many wardrobe changes, it's wonderful. You get into your routine, same thing if you have kids, same thing if you're going to work. I do this on the weekends, I do this when I get home. It's routine, routine, routine. And all of it is designed for us to be comfortable and to be safe and to get what we want when we want it all the time. And God says, "Mm, I have something more for you. I want to use you. I want to expand you. I want to grow you. I want to show you the riches that sacrificial love can bring in your life. And we're like, ooh, but what about my routine? (laughs) Is the good life that you want one in which the Holy Spirit leads, or is the good life that you want one in which you're in charge all the time? And I would argue that that life is poverty. And we can even turn our religion into poverty. We can push the Holy Spirit out of our lives because we don't want to take risks. It's way too dangerous. It's just much easier to leave the Holy Spirit here on Sunday morning than go live your life because you're good, right? Let me ask you a question. Do you want the Holy Spirit to give you a new heart? Do you want the Holy Spirit to use you to do miracles? Do you want the Holy Spirit to give you like a new will, a new desire so that what you want is actually what God wants? Do you want your prayers to change your children and your grandchildren and your family? Yes. Yes. Yeah, Tim and Jamie say yes, right? Right? Listen, I know your kids. You need to say yes. Zedekiah knows your kids really well. He's desperate you'll say yes. Of course we do. And so does Simon the sorcerer. But look what happens. Verse 18. Now, when Simon saw the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. That makes total sense how Simon would think, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit and I'll charge them. Because that was his business. You want the power of God to flow through me to you? Then you're going to pay for that. So I used to, I bought all my scrolls. I wanted the power of God in my life, so I'll pay that money to them. We do the same thing. It just sounds different. In our culture, we think us doing more or learning more is the form of payment required for the Holy Spirit to enter in our lives. In other words, the cash that is required is my efforts, my knowledge, my education, So we say to ourselves, is there some super, super old religious prayer I could learn? It's ancient. (gasps) What if I learn it in the Greek? (gasps) What if I learn it in the Hebrew? What if I pray that ancient prayer? Or that this, this particular scripture, if I pray this here, and I pray this scripture here, and I pray this scripture here, then God is forced, based on his promises, to do the things that I want. Isn't that how it works? Right? I just insist that God will do what I want by saying, well, you said you would, and then then we're like, aha, that's our payment, that's our cash. What's missing? Here's what's missing. Next slide. That's what's missing. 
Listen, if you want God the Holy Spirit in your life with all the power and all the benefits that the Holy Spirit brings, you must surrender. Not a little bit, all of it. Not part of your heart, all of your heart. Not part of your life, all of your life. In the 1840s, London was an absolute cesspool. You need to understand that in 410, when Rome fell, that's when um, French men with pants, they're called Visigoths, they, they, they literally invaded Rome and, and Rome fell. But on the island of England, uh, it was a Roman outpost. London was a thriving metrop- metropolis. And in 410 AD, London had running water. It had fresh, clean water in. It had a working, functional sewer system out. It had lights on the streets. It had... Um, roads that were guarded. It had uh, opportunities for weights and measurements so that trade could be established so everybody could agree on how much a pound of flour cost. Um, it, It was absolutely remarkable. London was thriving. By the time that the decay of the Roman Empire Uh, continued and London really started falling apart in the early 500s. London didn't get back running water and working sewage system and lights on the streets and safe roads and passages and actual functional government until the 1850s. 1,300 years of darkness defined London. So when William Booth arrived in London in the 1840s, He saw all of the poor of London living in extreme poverty and filth. They had no clean water, no jobs, no hope. They had children. Their children were working in factories 12, 14 hours a day. The children would maybe last four or five years until they died of exposure or sickness or horrific injury. Um, And he knew, William Booth knew he had to do something. And, And he preached every day. But he realized this is like, I'm, I, I've actually got to do more. So he started offering people meals. And, and they ate the, the, the meals, and then they would leave. And then he thought, man, how could I get them jobs? And so he, he started pulling resources together, and he would give clean shirts and a meal to men and women if they stayed to hear the message. There was a catch to it. And when you're that poor, and you're that hungry, and you're that desperate for work, they're like, fine, I'll stay for the message. And he preached the gospel to their lives, and all of a sudden they said, what? There's a God who loves me, even though I'm here? There's a God who cares for me, even though I've been ravaged by this world? And they started giving their lives to Christ by the hundreds and by the thousands. And then entire neighborhoods began to change. The world of London that is like the land of Charles Dickens, right? And like Oliver Twist and right, Christmas story, that horrible world for poor people began to be transformed and again began to be renewed and changes started to work its way up into government when it came to child welfare and child laws and clean water and sewage and slavery and it transformed English society. So many people were getting saved. It was like literally an army of people and they all were poor that were being saved and that's called the Salvation Army. 50 years later, when William Booth was an old man and he was asked the secret to his success, he replied with tears in his eyes, I will tell you the secret. God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I, men with greater opportunities, but from the day I got the poor of London on my heart 
and a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with the poor of London, I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth there was. And if there is anything of power in the Salvation Army today, it is because God has, ha has all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. The greatness of the power of God working in your life is measured by the surrender, your surrender, to the Holy Spirit. Simon didn't want to surrender. He just wanted more control. He just thought, if I just have more control, if I just have it my way, it'll work out. I've just done this for so long, I'll just keep on doing it this way. And Peter knows Simon's heart. He knows Simon's desires because Peter was Simon. And Peter has harsh words for Simon. They're the truth. And I'm going to read it to you in the message translation because, boy, this is a mic drop moment. Are you ready? It goes like this. Peter said to Simon, to hell with your money. This is scripture. I'm not, like, I'm not, this is like in the message Bible, okay? Peter says, to hell with your money and you along with it. Why, that's unthinkable, trying to buy God's gift. You'll never be part of what God is doing by striking bargains and offering bribes. Change your ways and now and ask the master to forgive you for trying to use God to make money. I can see that you're full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. I need you to understand something, that as you see God the Holy Spirit using other people around you, if you don't surrender, you will be filled with bitterness and anger. Why? How could God be using them? I think this way all the time. I used to think this way all the time, right? I'm such a good preacher. I went to Princeton. How is that church growing? That pastor is an idiot. <laughs> but he surrendered, and I wasn't. You're going to see people in your life. They're not as smart as you. They're not as accomplished as you. They have more tattoos than you do. They use bad words. And their hearts are surrendered to God, and God is using them powerfully, and you will be flummoxed. I don't understand why my prayers aren't working. I don't understand why I'm still experiencing the same thing over and over again. I thought that having this much money or retiring here on the coast would make everything better, and it's not because you're not surrendered. And God is inviting you more and more and more. Surrender more. Give me more. I want you all. I want all of you. Why? Not to wreck you. Not to put you in poverty. Not to blow everything you've ever accomplished or earned. No, to bless you and to use you to transform this weary and broken world. Amen? So Simon says, oh, I, I, don't, want, I, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to, okay, wait, what, Peter, what you're saying, huh? And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you say may come upon me. Now, Simon, he can't even pray for himself yet. I don't know, maybe he felt unworthy. Maybe he felt ashamed. I can picture Peter pulling Simon aside going, brother, I was right there with you. 
I told Jesus, hey, you shouldn't go to the cross. And he said to me, get behind me, Satan. I can picture Peter working with Simon to pray with him, to love him back to life. So would you be willing to pray a dangerous prayer with me? Would you be willing to surrender your life to the Holy Spirit? Maybe again, maybe for the first time. Would you pray this with me? Holy Spirit, I surrender my entire life to you. I surrender my whole heart to you. Forgive me for holding back. Forgive me for pushing you to the sidelines so I can have all the control. My strategy has failed. Holy Spirit, fill me now. Use me to love others. Use me to pray for others. I give you my will. I want to follow your lead. Unplug my ears so that I may hear you. And please help me feel your presence. My heart is desperate for you. I surrender my life to you, Jesus. Philip loved the people of Bakersfield of Samaria just like he was loved. My challenge to you and to us is this. I would like to challenge us to love a group of people on the Central Coast that were absolutely ravaged by the pandemic. And these people that were absolutely ravaged by the pandemic we don't really see them clearly because what we've done is that as we've gotten back to life as normal, what's happened is that we go out to restaurants and we go out to eat and we're just so grateful that we can like get a burger, right? Someone say amen. amen. I know you're hungry, right? And we're so grateful for that. And and we think to ourselves, man, this is really nice. But the people that have cooked that food and the people that have served that food, they were destroyed by the pandemic. So here's my challenge to us. When you got to lunch today, when you got to dinner tonight, when you got to eat this week, tip as much as you possibly can. If you're not tipping 20% already, talk to me afterwards. I was a server for many years. I'll tell you what it's like when you get a $3 tip. Go beyond that. Tip 50% of the bill. Tip 100% of the bill. Tip 200% of the bill. Last week, Zedekiah's sister, who's a server in a restaurant in Fresno, received a $1,000 tip. She couldn't believe it. She asked her bosses, what do I do with this? Like, this is legit. The guy wants to give me $1,000. And boss said, do whatever you want with it. So Callista pulled together her friends, her other servers at the restaurant who weren't even there that day. And she just gave the money away. And all these people in their 20s and in their 30s who've got small kids and have just been wrecked in the last couple of years, they just began to weep. You've been blessed. Help someone. I want every single person that you encounter in a restaurant this week to just be blown away. And you might not get the chance to say to them, God loves you, but you could write it on the receipt. But when they come pick it up, you just say, look, I see you. 
I love you. Thank you for your service. See what happens. Would you be willing to do that with me this week? Because I bought the lady's sandwich behind me in Jersey Mike's last week. And she said, thank you. But the guy behind the counter making the sandwiches with tattoos is probably on parole. I'm not kidding. <laughs> they have that program at Jersey Mike's. He looked at me and with teary eyes, he said, what? I said, man, it's just an $8 sandwich. He goes, dude, that's awesome. You don't know who you're going to touch, but I want us to be the kind of people that are no longer victims, but we are overcomers, and now we are more than conquerors because we are committed as a body of Christ to say, Holy Spirit, thy will be done. Would you sing these last two songs with me as an act of surrender? Let's stand. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance and his delight in you and give you the peace that passes all understanding. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And may the Holy Spirit fill you today and use you today and bless you today. And all God's people said, Amen. if you would like prayer today or be laid on, we'll lay hands on you. Come forward to the prayer. Otherwise, enjoy the food outside. God bless you guys. Pastor Andy Rock is the senior pastor of Coastal Community Church. It's located in Grover Beach, California, and serves communities across the Central Coast. Join us online each week on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. for our weekly live stream. We also have two in-person services at 9 a.m. and 10.40 a.m. in our sanctuary. Coastal Community Church is located at 1830 Farrell Road, Grover Beach, California. For more information, visit our website, www.mycoastal.org. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you have a great week.